good morning to you all uh, and thank you for zooming in. Um, before we begin with the web webinar this morning, I would first like to acknowledge and pay respect to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their lands that the University of Sydney is built. So as we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices, may we also pay respect and learn from the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of the country. So um, this webinar is part of our election watch series where we discuss the trajectory of American politics, power and prestige. And today we will be discussing why it is that the border wall is no longer a campaign issue. Uh, we know that in 2016, then candidate Donald Trump made immigration a key campaign platform, warning of Mexican rapists, criminals, coming to the United States. He then pledged that a wall on the US-Mexico border would be built and that Mexico would famously pay for it. Four years later, the US and Mexican presidents have publicly praised each other while a naturalization ceremony of immigrants to the United States was featured at the Republican National Convention just over a week ago. Moreover, immigration has slipped significantly from 2016 uh, in terms of Americans' priorities heading into the election. So just a recent NPR Ipsos poll has found uh, that it places actually on the 12th of the, the most worrisome topics uh, well be behind COVID-19, healthcare, political polarization, racial injustice, and gun violence. Uh, what's more, Americans don't support, uh, in majority don't support the construction of a physical border wall or high, hardline immigration policies. So to help us make sense of what's happening across the US southern border, we have a great pleasure this morning to talk to the New York Times foreign correspondent covering Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean, Natalie Kitroev, a Princeton grad. Uh, she was also in her previous uh, journalistic life appointed at the LA Times in Bloomberg. So thank you so much, Natalie, for making the time to talk to us uh, on your Monday evening. Uh, I'll let you open up with some introductory remarks before we actually get uh, started with uh, all the, the different uh, items on the agenda for this morning. Um, thank you for having me. It is a pleasure to be here. Um, you know, I think what we're talking about this evening is um, is about two leaders who have defied expectations um, in their home countries and abroad. And for Mexico, this is its most important by a long shot international relationship. Um, and you saw, you know, in both cases, in both countries, you have presidents that sort of build themselves as outsiders that won, you know, with really kind of broad coalitions, again, in, in some cases, unexpected coalitions, um, and whose relationship with each other has truly defied expectations from the very beginning. So, you know, I mean, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but it's, it does not by any means begin in 2020, the surprises in, in this relationship. And, you know, as he was coming into power, Andres Manuel López Obrador, um, who won, you know, I should remind everyone, a landslide historic um, electoral victory, wrote a book called Oye Trump that was about sort of um, knocking down a lot of what the president in the United States had said about Mexicans. So we were kind of set up for battle. 
what has ensued um, over the last two years since Andres Manuel has been in power is a completely different relationship. And there are a lot of reasons for that. There always have been, um, you know, and not to jump too far ahead of what we're going to be talking about, but imagine um, for a country like Mexico for a moment, the risks of confronting um, the United States at any time and especially the United States led by Trump. So despite a book that says, you know, listen, Trump, um, you have a nation that is in a very, you know, despite having a free trade agreement with this country, there's not a lot of balance in the relationship. And so, um, you know, that's what I would say to set this up, that, that we're talking about something that is unexpected, that has defied expectations, but that is in many ways, um, you know, easy to explain and understand when you kind of think a little bit beyond the, you know, rhetoric and bluster on both sides. Great. And I think we'll get to, to that story of the unlikely two amigos uh, with, with Trump and AMLO. Uh, and I'm not going to even dare to emulate your pronunciation of, of his name uh, for the fear that I might sound like Mike Bloomberg speaking Spanish. But um, can you please paint a, a picture for us uh, of where Mexico is at, at the moment? Obviously, we are uh, literally at the other end of the world here. Uh, we don't hear too much about kind of Western hemispheric issues, but we certainly, you know, in looking at some of those uh, really tragic rankings in terms of the rates of, of coronavirus infection, as well as death rates, see that Mexico is uh, quite high on those lists. So if you can tell us uh, where where the country is at the moment, and then we can uh, maybe uh, connect it to AMLO's leadership or, or what some would say maybe lag thereof in governing the pandemic uh, and, and uh, the fallout from it. Yeah, sure. I mean, Mexico is, I think right now on the fourth, uh, in the fourth place in terms of coronavirus deaths, um, recently overtaken by India, but um, very high on that list. Um, there is so little test, it's, one of the least tested countries in the world. I mean, in Australia, you, you can't, you can't even, we have nothing here. We have nothing to do with the way you have handled this pandemic. Um, there's no testing um, in many places of the country. There's very little testing at all. Um, Mexico is testing nine out of every hundred thousand people. Um, for reference, New York City, I don't know the numbers in Australia, but the in New York City, they're testing 322 out of every 100,000 people. So it gives you a sense of just the absolute lack of information that exists. But um, suffice it to say, the crisis is um, severe. The health crisis is severe. Um, you know, hospitalizations, you know, cases continue to rise despite the lack of testing, which um, is sort of frightening to think about. Um, there is you know, there has been a slight bend to the curve, but only just recently. I mean, for a while, for months, um, we were sitting at a peak that never came down. So, um, and all the while being promised by the federal government that the peak was coming and that this would sort of peter out eventually. Um, and, you know, I could talk for a while about how the, the president has, has confronted this, um, by putting a lot of faith essentially in his coronavirus czar, who is um, who has you know questioned masks himself, which is a bit frightening. Um, and you know the president has said has compared the virus to the flu, and I think 
you know, at, at times we can exaggerate a lot of leaders have, have messed up in this pandemic and, and even people that we trust have had the wrong idea about what was gonna happen. So we can't hold anybody to sort of um, ridiculous standards, but even given that, um, there's been a reluctance to kind of admit when there were wrong projections, um, a reluctance to send very clear messages about masks. Um, and so, you know, and, and this is in a country where poverty it's extreme poverty and inequality so there are you know millions of people who can't afford to stay home so it it makes i mean if you talk to epidemiologists in a situation like this it makes it the only tool that you have if you're not testing is social distancing and masks and that's not being um social distancing now is being encouraged but masks are not being encouraged as much as they should um economically it's just I mean, 12 million people have lost their jobs. Um, there's the sense that long after the virus has been defeated, um, you know, with a vaccine, the economic scars of this are going to last. And, you know, this president does not, he calls himself a leftist, but he does not approach economic um, problems with, you know, the tools of a leftist. He does not want to raise debt. He does not want to pour money into the problem. Um, and so, you know, you have a lot of people who need to work who have no lifeline other than an open economy. So, um, I mean, I hope that paints a picture of where things stand here. Yeah, thank you for that. So, um, basically extremely dire situation and uh, what you alluded to in terms of the uh, economic circumstances that obviously are part and parcel of the, of the, of the pandemic, but also uh, of some of AMLO's policies. Um, if you can maybe just uh, uh, expand a bit more on that. So you said he's kind of an unlikely uh, leftist populist president, but then maybe not as likely to engage in the same sort of economic policies or implementation of, of those as we might expect. And uh, obviously there have been some projections uh, made by uh, different uh, international uh, organizations that Mexico might be facing at an economic crisis that's worse than uh, that of 95, that potentially uh, the United States would be called upon to throw in some sort of lifeline. Um, is this really, I mean, um, to what extent is it just the pandemic and to what extent now, two years in, um, AMLO has kind of missed his chance on, on the agenda that he set up um, originally to, to fulfill? Yeah, I, I think it, what you're raising is important, which is that even before the pandemic, Mexico was technically contracting last year, which, you know, as a foreign correspondent, I just came to Mexico this year, as you know, before the pandemic, a, it's a huge story. I mean, in, you know, the US economy and the Mexican economy, you know, the, the sort of growth rates, um, you know, GDP, it all goes sort of hand in hand. I mean, it's obviously not at the same level, but you see the trend lines um, follow one another. Last year was the first time in a very long time, decades, that, that um, there was a divergence. Um, it wasn't extreme, but it was already not looking good. Um, and now, you know, I mean, he is, his thing is austerity, which, I mean, he's, like, people have said he's sort of like a Thatcher-like um, approach to the economy. It's very strange. I mean, he's, 
you know, again, he is a self-styled leftist, um, but he really, and I think in a kind of, um, it's really hard to describe Amlo if you're not here, but he's a, he's a moralistic leader. He's sort of, his, uh, part of his um, charisma and also his, I think, um, the loyalty that he demands in his own ranks, not just of his followers, but in his cabinet and of the people that are sort of part of his movement, as he would call it, um, comes from this moral high ground. And part of that moral high ground has to do with this obsession with austerity. So he has, since he came into office, he has been cutting public spending, um, cutting public spending on health, you know, but on everything. I mean, nothing has been spared. I mean, things have gotten, and his response to the pandemic has been to dig in more. So when you see the US doing, you know, these trillion dollar packages left and right, there is the opposite of that here. The response has been to belt tighten as if, you know, that somehow it's going to inject life into the economy or say, you know, the idea is he's spending on his, sorry, we have a helicopter. He's spending on the programs he cares about, but those programs aren't, you know, it's not an economic recovery. Um, it's not a business, you know, he does not believe in rescuing businesses. So you're seeing cabinet, I mean, cabinets, you're seeing, um, secretaries here so ministries just i mean they literally can't pay for their toilet paper they can't pay for their light bills i mean they have no budget at all now they're you have public servants being asked to give up their salaries as if again in this sort of drop in the bucket sense he's going to pour this into social programs um but those social programs you know it's a, a country of 128 million people so those social programs just aren't meeting um the demand that there is right now. Um, it's this self-fulfilling cycle that we're talking about where there's, there's no su public support. So people are on the streets trying to earn money, which, and then you see the case numbers. So how does this work electorally then? I mean, uh, we know of right-wing populists who tend to do opposite of what we would expect right-wing politicians do, and that's the kind of largesse, right? And, and we have, have here a left-wing populist that's uh, basically cutting the, the other side's grass in terms of the austerity measures. Have his um, approval ratings been dropping? What's, what's the sense on the streets? What's the kind of level of support, as you say, among the, the movement that brought him uh, to, to the presidency? He, he is, his support, I should look at the very latest polls, it dipped a bit um, over the course of the pandemic. Um, but I mean, it's still in the high 50s. So, um, you know, I mean, and he came into power and he had something like above 80% approval. So, I mean, yes, it, over the course of his presidency, as any very popular president does, you know, his, his approval ratings haven't stayed sky high. Um, but, you know, I think the way in which he reflects these policies is that governments, that successive governments in Mexico have been steal, have been corrupt, have been stealing from people, have been using public office for private benefit to benefit the few, and that this government is going to live, I mean, he doesn't live in the Mexican, you know, the Los Pinos, you know, the Mexican White House. He lives, you know, he, you know, he doesn't do that. He doesn't take, you know, he's trying to sell the presidential plane. He flies commercial. I mean, and this is all built as sort of like, we are not going to succumb to the excesses of the past. And so 
while the programs may be hurting some of the people who, you know, the programs, the approach that he's taking may be hurting a lot of the people who voted for him. You know, when he talks about how the Mexican state has been kidnapped by, you know, a few rich men for several years in which they, they were sort of using public office for private gain, that resonates with people. You know, they do feel that way. So, um, you know, he has, he is a he is a very very politically smart deft uh, messenger, and I think that message is part of the reason why um, you know you're not seeing his approval ratings dip. I mean, not yet. Again, we're really at the front end of of as you say, what could be a historic uh, economic crisis in this country. So we'll see what happens. So to shift gears a bit and and. Um follow on from what you alluded to this interdependence between the United States and Mexico and the fact that we are finding ourselves at this sort of point where you say the basically the fork kind of uh, goes the the opposite way and I think that I'm gonna have to get the light on but hopefully people will be able to see me still. Um, the question of um, that interdependence and most of all the kind of platform with which the, the president AMLO uh, got into the office was sounding very anti-American, right? Oya Trump, or at least anti-Trumpian to an extent. How do we explain everything that has happened over the past year or so, especially in terms of the um, USMCA, but then especially around immigration, the White House meeting that they had just a couple of months ago? What what is it that has changed? Has AMLO just been basically cornered in a sense? Has it been kind of pressure from the US or he's just found it uh, to be more politically opportune to, to actually start converging? Is it a bit of both? Um, yeah. What um, are the explanations? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's useful here to broaden a little bit even more. Um, you know, I'm covering um, Central America as well. And so if you think just about how the region has responded to Trump, um, I think there's a commonality across a lot of countries. And I would include the Northern Triangle in Central America, which is Honduras, um, Guatemala, and El Salvador. These countries uh, face a president. First of all, they face a trading partner that could not be more important. They face their you know, biggest um, military power just on the doorstep, a country with a history of intervention in their countries. Um, and they are hearing from the president, essentially, um, if you don't do what I want on immigration, I'm going to make life very hard for you. And I'm, and I'm not just, you know, in the beginning, I think there was some sense that, you know, this could be um, a bluff. But he started trade wars all over the world, right? So it became pretty clear to the presidents in this region that it wasn't a bluff um, and that this was something that could really happen to them. These countries cannot afford a trade war with Trump. So what you saw in the Northern Triangle um, is, first of all, you, you have a couple, several presidents, Nayib Bukele, Juan Orlando in, in Honduras, and Yamate in Guatemala, who all have their own businesses, uh, their own issues in their own countries. Nayib Bukele, for example, has been making, you know, sort of moves toward authoritarianism. Um, uh, Juan Orlando has criminal issues. 
Um, Yamate has, you know, no corruption structure, no corruption investigative instruction structure left and sort of, you know, these countries have basically done what Trump has asked in return for the implicit, you know, promise of Trump leaving them alone. And that has really worked out for them. So think about Mexico in that context. Yes, Mexico is a bigger country. And yes, it has more power. And it has, you know, it is a manufacturing hub. It's, you know, one of the biggest economies in the region. However, you know, AMLO is a president who until he visited Trump this year had not made a single trip abroad. So you're talking about someone whose agenda is firmly domestic. Um, he is, you know, his whole thing, you know, is about sort of, it's a very Mexican context, his, his project, this, what he calls the fourth transformation of Mexico. Um, it is going to be disturbed by a trade war. Um, so, I mean, as, as we said, you know, his first year or, or last year, we saw a retraction. He, he could not, he, he figured out pretty quickly that the risks of doing battle with Trump far outweighed the benefits, which what would the benefits have been? I mean, AMLO is, has taken the mantle of nationalism and is really wearing it. You know, this is the new Mexico and we're going to make this country more just and less corrupt and all this stuff. So he doesn't need the nationalistic bump that it would give him to kind of confront this guy. And he learned very quickly that this guy was not fooling around and he could really, I mean, in an instant, um, badly hurt the Mexican economy. Um, and so, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't think that it's much more complicated than that. I mean, he has managed to, um, for totally self-interested and, and really rational reasons, um, appease this guy um, and do all sorts of things that I don't think anybody expected a leftist president to do who sort of said he was gonna welcome migrants and all of these things. Um, you know, there's refugee camps in the North of Mexico now. And so, um, you know, he has bent over backwards to accommodate Trump's immigration agenda. And, you know, in return, not always, but slowly but surely, Trump has, you know, as, as AMLO has promised people and told people recently, really improved his tone about the country. So um, it's, you know, it is a totally rational bargain that it was still something that I think a lot of people did not expect to see from this president. So basically what you're saying is the kind of rational calculation. We just can't uh, engage in, in this sort of uh, either trade war or, or basically uh, any sort of uh, ramping up of tensions over immigration because it could have uh, a really bad uh, fallout for, for Mexican economy or for relations in general. Yeah, I mean, you know, in the last presidency of Enrique Peña Nieto, he invited you know, Trump came to visit Mexico during the campaign. And it was this, I mean, it was a huge embarrassment for Peña Nieto. It was a national scandal, right? You actually did not see that at all when AMLO went to visit Trump. Um, so there was a completely different price paid. I mean, there were relate, you know, Kushner really managed the Mexico, Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, managed the relationship with Mexico with the Mex former Mexican finance minister. And even, you know, Vidagaray was, the minister was uh, willing to come out and criticize Trump. You see none of that, none of that from the AMLO administration. Um, and, and part of that is that AMLO himself is, is uh, firmly in control of his cabinet. 
um, in a way that I don't even think Peña Nieto was. So are there any uh, maybe lessons for other pa partners or allies around the world in terms of this sort of uh, approach to, to the Trump administration? Or is this something that's really kind of exclusive to US-Mexico relations because obviously of, of the proximity and the importance that, that the US frankly has for um, Mexico uh, economically or, or in, in terms of social relations and, and so on. So um, is, there, is there anything that we could extract again from this part of the world uh, to, to kind of see how it is that, you know, a president comes into office basically saying that he'll deal with Trump much differently, right? And then ends up becoming, uh, again, friends uh, in, a, in a way that was completely unexpected and uh, uh, completely uh, not part of the uh, original campaign that, that he ran on. I mean, I think that, um, I think what really will determine the lessons that can be extracted from this is who wins the election in 2020. Because if Trump wins the election in 2020, this gamble made total sense and there's not much to extract. I mean, there is something to extract if you are uh, in this kind of an imbalanced relationship with the US, if your economy depends quite this much, which nobody's does depend this much on the United States. I mean, the, the border, I mean, it's, you know, cars pass, back and forth every time they're made. So it's just, you know, um, if Biden wins, and, and this is an open question, um, you know, it's an open question how much Biden would, um, you know, I don't think the word would be punish, but um, how much Biden would, a Biden administration would take into account AMLO's behavior towards Trump, his appeasement of Trump, the, you know, camps for migrants that have been set up. Um, on the other side of the border under this Remain in Mexico program where migrants are now being sent back after crossing the border to wait in Mexico before applying for asylum. Um, will Biden be able to reverse those policies? I think it'll be really difficult, frankly. Um, you know, is, is a Biden administration really gonna be like, oh yeah, you know what? Let's just open our borders to all of these people that are now there that Mexico is now handling. I mean, there's, you know, Mexican troops are guarding the border now. Is Biden really going to say, you know what, actually, let's send our guys down there. Let's, I mean, it's, it's the relationship that's been set up um, is, you know, this appeasement relationship. You know, I mean, I think the lesson is kind of regardless of who wins, these decisions that are in, that are thought about in self-interest, in very short-term self-interest, may not be actually in the long-term self-interest of Mexico. And two, you know, if, if Biden wins, are you going to have problems for have, you know, for visiting Trump and not visiting Biden um, in Washington? I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying that you will, but I'm saying this is a question. And, and two, will you have set up a situation in which you're carrying water for the most powerful economy in the world and you can't actually reverse that now? This is, this, this is a long-term deal that you've gotten yourself in, regardless of whether Trump remains in power. Um, and so, you know, in some ways, I think it's Mexico unique. But again, if Biden wins, and we see one of those two things, either of those two things play out in a way that's not good for Mexico, you have to wonder, even if you're in this imbalanced relationship, whether that is a rational, long term decision.
That's great. And we've actually just, I think it was some sort of serendipitous moment where we had a question from Frederick Chilton that was exactly that. What, uh, would anything change if, if Biden wins? And I would just like to remind uh, all of the uh, participants in the webinar, you can use the Q&A box to uh, pose any questions that, that you might have as we uh, move along. So the Q&A box is uh, down uh, over, over there. Um, so um, just on getting slightly back on, on so the, the big two issues, obviously, trade and immigration and this whole wall saga that we've uh, been able to kind of follow uh, the extent to which this was actually such a prominent issue when it came to the 2018 midterms in the United States, the caravans story and, and all that. Uh, but now, you know, the kind of bookend uh, getting closer to the 2020 election, Steve Bannon famously falling for basically embezzling the, the funds that were supposed to fund the border, um, the border wall. So um, just in terms of Mexico's perspective, we, we hear obviously from both sides of the uh, U.S. political spectrum on, you know, their stances towards the, the border wall. I just quoted earlier uh, some of the stats around how salient this issue is uh, in this particular political cycle. But can you again paint us, you are in this great position to, to see the wall from the other side. Um, what is a Mexican public stance? Um, how does it look from, from your vantage point, uh, just in terms of the kind of story of construction, also uh, just the, the kind of uh, uh, the agenda setting on this issue that has been so persistent in the first half of, of Trump's presidency. And I would note we had a, a Sydney Uni a student, Katie Richards, asking, um, have videos of parts of the border wall being blown down in January by strong winds had any effect on, on how this issue is seen? Um, so um, a, a broader question on, on just the, the kind of uh, um, salience of, of, of the wall from the other uh, end of the border. Yeah. I mean, I think, and I do, I, you know, to answer the Biden question, just, I mean, first, I think both, the answer to both of these questions is just right now there is, um, and, and, you know, as you said in your kind of opening remarks, the list of priorities um, has grown very long and the wall and, you know, you know, in, at least from this side, you know, the wall, Trump's comments, have all bumped down on the list, you know, your violence is rising here, there's an economic crisis, you know, there's this pandemic, you know, people are really worried about feeding their families. And so, you know, I think to answer the wall question, I mean, in the beginning, um, this was viewed as, um, as a humiliation and as a, an insult, and he was insulting, you know, Mexican people over and over again. And, you know, I mean, don't forget, you know, almost everyone that you meet here, um, this is not a statistic, um, has family in the United States or friends in the United States. So this wasn't just, you know, insulting immigrants. This was insulting people's families. Um, it was very, you know, potent. Um, but, you know, I mean, like everything, you know, Trump's comments that became more and more incendiary, you know, people get desensitized to that kind of thing and sort of viewed, you know, as, as your student notes, um, 
some of this is a little bit of clownery and, you know, bluster and it was absurd and, you know, trade was still happening. And so, you know, and, and I mean, I think there has been a lot of, um, you know, angst, rightly so, about um, the camps of migrants and, and Central American migrants being in this country and there being real, no real plan, you know, for how to deal with that. Um, but there's just so much else on people's minds now that it's been eclipsed. And to get to the Biden question, which I know I partly answered, but I mean, this is just my opinion and I don't have a crystal ball, but I talked to the Biden people quite a, a bit. Um, I get the sense that there is some concern about AMLO and the way that he has handled the pandemic. Um, and, you know, I don't think anybody particularly liked it that he decided to come to Washington and not visit Biden. But I mean, when you consider again, the, I mean, just think about the risks if you're the Mexican president. I mean, the risk that Biden is going to start a trade war upon coming into office are very low because you didn't meet with him. The risks that Trump could decide to, to start a trade war because you rejected his offer are higher, you know? And so there was a very rational sense that the risks of pissing off Biden are just not as grave as the risks of pissing off Trump. And I actually think that's true. Um, you know, the Biden folks, it, while they're concerned and while they're paying attention, um, there, there is, as you all know, so such a deep domestic crisis in the United States, a once in a lifetime um, you know, movement for racial justice, a once in a lifetime pandemic, a once in a lifetime economic crisis. I mean, when Biden comes to, if Biden wins and comes to office, he would have to deal with that. And I mean, there's no real sense that he would be able to devote a ton of attention to AMLO. I mean, and again, you know, I, like this is just totally me freelancing my opinion on this, but I don't know how quickly he would be able to reverse some of these Trump policies either. So I think the answer to both questions is, there is so much else that is on people's plates at the moment that it's become, the wall has become either a joke or a distant memory, you know, or just something in the noise in the background for now. Yeah, but interesting what you're saying from at least political science perspective, how some of these uh, policies that are made and, and implemented, uh, the path dependence and the kind of course they chart out that, uh, you know, for then other reasons is very hard to to maybe get uh, uh, on uh, another track and, and kind of change uh, other pressing priorities. Uh, we still have a couple of questions in the Q&A box. And so Frederick Chilton is double dipping here, but he is asking a question that obviously uh, a lot of people uh, would would um, unfortunately uh, associate with uh, the the um, Mexican politics and also obviously U.S. Mexico relations, and that's uh, a question on uh, uh, just uh, policies on uh, count counter drugs and, and um, stopping criminal cartels. Uh, one of the stories that's been really interesting that. Um, not that long ago, I think PBS had a, a report on the so-called narco-philanthropy, the fact that the uh, state hasn't been able to actually provide for, you know, just a mass and, and just some of the basic, what, what you were saying, kind of healthcare uh, um, 
aid and that this is where cartels have been the source of help in places where government has been largely absent. So was very kind of curious to, to see that happening. But uh, on, on this broader issue on, on progress on the drugs front and, and stopping the criminal cartels um, under, under AMLO. Not a lot of progress. Um, but the opposite of progress. Um, I mean, you know, Amlo came to power promising his famous slogan was hugs, not bullets. Um, the more, you know, generous um, review of, of what his approach might have been was that he was sort of saying that he was going to address the root cause of criminality and, and which was poverty. Um, but that has not, uh, you know, panned out so far. Um, violence has increased. Um, for a while, a few months ago, or a month ago, we were experiencing a series of increasingly um, 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 sort of blatant, bloody, and extreme violent acts on the part of the Jalisco cartel, which is the new sort of dominant cartel across the country. Um, and, you know, the, the, I mean, this is beyond, far more than Trump this is an issue that could really hurt the president um, because this is something that touches Mexicans everywhere, every day, and is tangible, you know, unlike the wall. Um, you know, this is filters into their everyday life. Um, and you are seeing um, an increasing willingness, especially on the part of this um, Jalisco Nueva Generacion cartel um, to, to stage attacks against law enforcement. The police chief of Mexico City was recently targeted. It was a failed assassination attempt, but a very, very serious one. Um, there was an attack on a drug rehab facility um, that killed upwards of 25 people. Um, you know, you, there was a drug plane that landed and crashed and went into flames near Cancun. Um, so, you know, there has been a um, brazenness with which the cartels have been operating of late. Um, that is not good, for, obviously, for the country, but not good for um, the, the president by any means, um, because rhetoric can't um, paper over that problem for people because they live it every day. That's great. Um, I would like to uh, now ask a live question from... Um, a former Australian ambassador to Mexico, Ambassador Richard Brynowski, uh, is here with us and, and able to join us. Good morning, Ambassador. Can you hear us? Hopefully loud and clear. We will have to just unmute you. That's always one of the... We can't hear you. Sorry, if you can just unmute yourself, the little left... There, how's that? Can you see me now? That's amazing. Hear me now? Absolutely, loud and clear. Sorry? Awesome. Oh, very good, that's good. Thank you again for joining us this morning. Hopefully you've had a chance to, to hear a bit of the discussion. Um, you were uh, the ambassador to, to Mexico and certainly someone who's watching uh, Mexican politics and, and foreign policy to this day. So, um, do you have questions for Natalie? Uh, hopefully questions uh, or, or, uh, or comments and, and interventions. Where do you see things at, at the moment in light of the 2020 uh, election? I do, yes, and I do. 
Yes. Thank you, Gorana and Natalie. I've been watching you and listening to you with great interest. I think you're making a very obvious point, and that is that uh, whether Trump gets elected or not, re-elected or not, nothing much is going to change. And Biden would have to do a lot of backpedaling to try to restore relations to the state they were in when I was ambassador. I presented my credentials to Carlos Salinas in 1994, and I saw him off and uh, said goodbye to, uh, to Ernesto Zedillo. That time, uh, we were having a lot of interest in developing relations, trade relations with Mexico, because recently before that, uh, Mexico joined NAFTA. Uh, I had a lot of concerns, a lot of uh, trade ministers were coming to Mexico. It's a long way between Australia and Mexico and always Australians thought, look, we're not doing enough in Central and Latin America. We have to have better relations with Mexico. And it was partly why I went there after I'd been ambassador in Korea. The trade link was very important. We developed that, but all the time I was conscious of the, uh, of the weaknesses, the sociological weaknesses in, in Mexico the fact that they've got thousands of police forces, many of them corrupt. The fact that you've got corruption that goes right to the center. The fact is that when President Salinas left, he left under a, a cloud. He took money with him and it just showed that although he was Harvard educated, most of his cabinet were, and they were bright young men, uh, nothing much had changed. And I keep thinking when I see the new president and when he comes on board and when AMLO appeared as a, a social socially conscious and socially democratic president that he was going to change things, nothing much has changed. And I think that's what Nat Natalie was reflecting in what she said. I had relations, good relations with the uh, American ambassador Jones at that time. We had a, a standing meeting on drugs and what to do about them. And uh, he admitted, and I, I thought also that it really was a, a problem for the United States. If the Americans didn't have the demand for the drugs, the Mexicans who were supplying them all, they were going through Mexico, wouldn't have had the, the custom. As it was, if you, if you give a, a Mexican policeman enough money to feed himself and his family and send his kids to school for a year, he's going to take it. And this sort of institutional corruption was alive and is alive now. I was to lead a, a delegation from Australia, from the Australian Institute of International Affairs to Mexico this uh, next month in October, but that couldn't be done because of coronavirus, of course. I was also ambassador to Central American republics and Cuba from Mexico when I was ambassador in Mexico. And I'm very conscious of the fact that the, um, the Guatemalas, the El Salvador, Honduras and Nicaragua, uh, refugees coming from those countries through Mexico to the United States were and are in a desperate situation. Natalie talked about the, the economic, the, the parlous state of Mexico now, but it's worse in the Central American republics. And why is that? When you look at the economic and political history of these countries, it's really the United States that has created the situation that exists in those countries. There's poverty and there's desperation, and it's not getting any better. I also uh, share Natalie's view that Trump has been insulting and in incendiary, and he's shown a lot of um, threat to Mexico. And I, I can understand why, 
Hamlo is into appeasement. I think if I was president of Mexico, I'd do the same thing. So these are some random thoughts I have. Um, Mexico for people, the hospitality I was given, the travel I did, the uh, people who I had so much in common with are with me still. I have friends there as well and they continue enduring friends. But I'm worried about the country and I'm wondering where it's going to go in this worldwide pandemic we have of coronavirus. It's a very serious situation. And I do thank you for inviting me onto this program. Thank you so much, Ambassador Brynowski. Um, so it doesn't instill a lot of optimism that you know the more things change, the more they kind of stay the same. Um, but certainly plenty for all of us politics and foreign policy watchers to, to keep an eye on. So thank you again uh, for your contribution this morning. Um, it's, it's been great to hear uh, about your experience from, from the 90s. Um, Natalie, Ambassador just opened up and, and you alluded to just broader kind of hemispheric issues or just the regional issues. Um, refugee policy is another one that's been a question from one of our uh, uh, participants uh, who is a student from James Cook University, Tracy Charles. Um, is there any potential, I mean, we've heard about, you know, the kind of militarization, obviously, of, of uh, the whole uh, refugee response under AMLO, which is quite different to what it was originally. But um, is, there, is there any sort of a hope that some of these things will be dealt with in the sources of origin? Um, so, you know, people escaping poverty or violence, as, as Ambassador was also saying, is this something that the region hopes, you know, in thinking if there is a Biden presidency that this might change? Because obviously we know that President Trump has been slashing uh, aid budgets. Um, what's, what's your thought on, on some of these broader uh, regional issues? I mean, I do. Th I think that is one place in, in terms of the aid, you know, budget that that could come back. But I mean, let's be very clear. It's not as if the amount of aid that we were giving, you know, that the U.S. was giving to Central America was working to, you know, I mean, look, migration had not been skyrocketing, um, you know, but there was still, you know, I think that, um, and I don't give Trump, you know, or his administration, you know, credit for this um, argument. But I think the the argument that Central American countries themselves have been um, sort of so, and I don't mean mismanaging aid money because much of this aid money goes directly to civil society organizations in these countries. So that's not really what I'm talking about. But what I am talking about is countries that are led either by corrupt leaders who end up in jail a lot of the time or who get away with it, um, and as the ambassador was saying, leave with a lot of money, um, you know, managed by very wealthy people whose interests are in keeping the status quo the way it is, um, creating broad-based economic growth that benefits a broad swath of the population that might, um, you know, prevent or dissuade people from immigrating has not been an interest in many of these nor Northern Triangle countries because, you know, what do these guys get out of it? Um, these leaders have had no real motivation to create that kind of growth. Um, while it may, you know, it, it may be in their own interest in the long term again, but they don't see it that way. So 
um, you know, I, I sort of think, you know, even if the aid money comes back, it's a drop in the bucket ultimately. And when you have the kind of crime and, um, and I, I really do think corruption is something that is underplayed as a reason that drives people out because it's that kind of corruption that, that gets in the way of policies that could, um, again, you know, create jobs at home and um, at the very least educate and create opportunities that way. And if it's just not a priority for these countries, it sort of, in my opinion, doesn't matter that much how much aid you give because you can keep giving aid, but ultimately, you know, if people are getting, um, you know, if there's a chance basically if they're facing either getting, you know, raped or, you know, conscripted into a gang, um, they're going to leave, you know, it doesn't matter whether, you know, I, I just don't think that there is even under, even under a potential Biden administration, enough aid to counteract what is, I think, often um, policies on the part of these governments that just does not create the conditions for people staying home. Great. Um, we are getting to the last nine or so minutes of the webinar, so our, our time is, is running uh, precipitously uh, uh, and, and rapidly uh, towards the top of the hour. So um, just a couple of more questions, and, and this one is uh, maybe an expansion on uh, what my colleague and your former colleague from uh, CFR, Jared Monshine, who is a senior advisor here uh, at the US Studies Center, uh, what he's asked, and that's a question on uh, USMCA or ASMACA, as I've heard some people call it, and the impact that it will have ultimately is, you know, with this sort of signature deal, one of the, the uh, ones that, that certainly Trump, President Trump will use in the election campaign um, as, as a major kind of uh, foreign policy achievement. What is the likely effect it will have uh, on Mexican economy and trade? Uh, we've heard about the pandemic, obviously, uh, now and in some of the economic mismanagement, uh, even prior to it uh, being obviously uh, uh, pulling the Mexican economy down. But uh, is there any hope that this will uh, be something, again, of a lifeline? And also a kind of sidelined question to, to that is, uh, would Mexico be open to, say, expanding uh, this agreement to, uh, say, the existing agreements uh, with nations such as Australia, for instance? I mean, I, I do think that there is a... Um there's a willingness to um, uh, to engage. I don't know specifically about the um, you know about what has been talked about both kind of I mean in Australia and other countries. But I think there is a um, a sense of desperation has set in that um, has made, and I really do think his economy team you know is they were really pro getting this NAFTA deal, I mean, USMCA deal done. Um, and so you have a lot of people that I know of in there that are very committed to free trade and that are highly educated and, um, you know, a lot of women in that, in that group, in that ministry. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't bet against it. Um, but I, you know, I don't know specifically, I would say in terms of USMCA, it was actually a pretty good deal for Mexico. I mean, you know, by a pretty good deal for Mexico, I mean, it was basically a rewrite of NAFTA. I mean, there wasn't that much change, but NAFTA did need to be updated. I mean, you know, 
the bluster around the deal, just set that aside for a second, because yes, we know that Trump said it was the worst deal ever in all of history and that he created the best deal ever. And like, really, the deals were not very different. But I mean, it was true that NAFTA needed to be updated um, and it was updated. And there were a lot of labor uh, provisions in this deal that um, are really, really progressive, um, which is kind of an anomaly, right? I mean, there's this Republican president, he's rewriting NAFTA, but his whole campaign has been about saving American labor. So American unions and um, pro-labor Democrats had a big hand in writing a lot of these provisions. Um, and they really, they, you know, again, provide for wage increases, competition among unions, because unions here are very corporatized. Um, and I, I think the really the open question is um, how much enforcement will there be of these policies? Because of course, if they're just on paper, they won't help at all. I mean, I think for Mexico without a USMCA with this crisis just would be unsurvivable. So it's sort of, you know, it's just beyond comprehension what would happen to this economy. Um, but, you know, I mean, if they are able to enforce these provisions on labor, on the environment, um, you know, and, and I think really on competitiveness in a country that will be now has six more years or sorry, four more years of um, a president who is sort of has done he canceled an airport contract you know there's all sorts of like he really wants to kind of take control of Pemex I mean not nationalized but um, I think the sort of competitive clauses in the deal are are good things to have for both sides for for businesses and for growth um, a lot depends on enforcement though and so you know, I think we're going to see that tested even within the next couple of months. Um, so it's something to keep an eye on. Great. And one final question, and I'll use my uh, uh, chairs and, and moderators prerogative to ask you uh, about um, just your experience as a foreign correspondent in Mexico and covering the region. So the Caribbean and uh, also uh, Central America more broadly, uh, what have been some of the uh, maybe misconceptions or things that you know uh, you have changed your mind over or what are the things that you would like to leave us with as we uh, think about uh, this part of the world, uh, especially again, a part of the world that, that, it's, that is not really as widely covered or thought about and, and what Ambassador Bronowski was saying, uh, you know, uh, this foreign policy idea as well in terms of, you know, Australia's strategic thinking and foreign policy making that is certainly not uh, at any kind of forefront of attention, even though there's plenty of, of kind of um, ideas there that, that uh, it should would maybe be uh, much more so. So uh, things that have changed your mind and things that you can leave us with as, as kind of keepers and takeaways uh, to, to know uh, uh, about uh, this part of the world that you find yourself in. I mean, I think broadly speaking, um, you know, there is a lot of polarization here. I think that is something that I've been most surprised by um, is the level of political polarization there is in this country. And I came from the United States. So to say that I've been surprised by that um, is really saying something. And I think um, says something, you know, if not specifically about Australia, it says something about um, 
politics and domestic politics across the globe at this point. Um, there is no middle ground here, I don't find. I find that there is one side which is sort of pro this movement um, that is the president's party and another side that is against it. Um, and the two don't really meet in the middle a lot. You don't find the pro um, folks doing a ton of self-criticism. And part of the reason is that the anti folks um, are really doing a lot of it on their own. And so, um, you know, and a lot of it, you know, we all, and I think even the president says that criticism is welcome, but he also attacks the media regularly. Um, so it's, it's become a kind of a political battleground, I think, here in a way that I didn't expect. I think that's the case in a lot of the countries that I cover. And I think um, that this kind of climate has a lot to do with the things that are you know, driving political consciousness in this world in many countries, which is social media, you know, Facebook, um, you know, disinformation campaigns on whatever platform they may be. Um, you know, a sense that, you know, at least in Mexico, a sense that, you know, the capitalistic opening of Mexico has not served people as well as it could have. And the reaction to that was electing AMLO in this case. Um, a kind of backlash against that and this moment of reckoning of kind of, well, what comes next then, you know, and, and what's the correction? You're seeing that all over the world and you are certainly seeing it here. And there's just this layer of tense politicization that makes um, kind of calm discussion feel rare sometimes. Um, and that is, I think it's a hard, I mean, you know, it, it's, of course, I love being here and I love covering this country and, and the region, um, but it is, it can be a very tense environment um, to operate in. Um, and I think, I mean, I do think that's universal these days, unfortunately. So um, if anything, it's a lesson in the commonality of what this political climate um, has brought on for, for a lot of us. That's great. Thank you so much, Natalie. And that was a nice closing thought on, on the, the comparative politics of, of it all uh, and how maybe a lot of politics around the world looks very Latin American uh, days, uh, so to speak. Um, again, thank you so much uh, for uh, taking out an hour from what I imagine is always, you know, a crazy Monday and uh, to do so in your evening hours. Once again, thank you to Ambassador Brainovsky for joining us and for posing a live question, as well as to all of you who have registered for uh, this webinar and who have been posing questions or just listening intently uh, to our webinar today. Uh, the recording will be available shortly, both as a video and an audio, so keep an eye on the USSC uh, website. Um, I will also invite you to another one of these, uh, part of the Election Watch series next Tuesday. Uh, our CEO, Professor Simon Jackman, will be talking with author Nick Bryan uh, about when America stopped being great, uh, a conversation on the uh, American decline or uh, uh, relative or absolute, depending on where 
find yourself uh, on the side of the debate. And uh, before closing up, thank you to the great uh, US Study Center team, Janine, Mara, Mari, Taylor, Suze, and others who have helped facilitate this from uh, uh, the background and, and making it all possible. So thank you all again, uh, and we look forward to seeing you at uh, another webinar uh, next week.